Hello, and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, I'll be discussing the fantasy subgenre known as sword and sorcery with Brian Murphy. Brian started writing about fantasy literature online in 2007, and since then has been published in venues like Mythprint, Skelos, and Blackgate, while continuing to update his blog, The Silver Key. In 2019, Pulp Hero Press published his first book, Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery. Flame and Crimson has become the definitive history of the genre, and recently won an Atlantean Award from the Robert E. Howard Foundation. We are thrilled to have Brian with us today. And we're here with Brian Murphy. Hi, Brian. Hey, Oliver. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, man. Thanks for joining us. I loved your book, and it's really gratifying to get to talk to people whose work I have enjoyed so thoroughly. Well, thank you. It was a, it was a labor of love of many years, and glad to bequeath it onto the world. And, and uh, at least I have one, one, uh, one fan and, and, and one reader who enjoyed what I had to say. Oh, well, I can tell you, you got at least two because uh, <laughs> uh, because the Merrill Collection does have a copy of uh, Flame and Crimson on its shelves. It was deemed, oh my God. you know, academically noteworthy, uh, a good study of the genres, a good reference point for people and worth preserving for decades to come on their, you know, on their climate controlled shelves behind. It's not bulletproof glass, but I like to pretend it is. Uh, <laughs> wow. You can check it out with your library cards. Does it have one of the old school uh, library card uh, things in the oh, back? Oh, it's got a Are fancy Merrill uh, like barcode thing because the way it works is you go into the collection and you can only look at the book in the reading room because they don't want like rare editions getting stolen or damaged or whatever. So people okay. have to come in and take it out like a you know Talmudic scholar and put it out on the table and just read it there and then put it back. And they can have like a bookmark in it, like an acid-free piece of paper to mark their spot in your book. But uh, no one is allowed to take uh, the coffee of Flame and Crimson. Wow. So, okay. So, uh, obviously, I think the book's great. And we will link to it in the show notes. And we will link to it on Twitter and everywhere else, uh, listeners. So, have no fear. But right now, why don't we uh, talk to Brian about his book and about the genre of sword and sorcery. Starting up, I mean, not everybody is familiar with the genre. I, I certainly have noticed a lot of people kind of think it's just another way of saying fantasy. So, I was wondering, Brian, could you maybe tell us what do you feel are key elements of the genre and how far can a story stray before you'd say it becomes something else? Great question. And, and first of all, Oliver, I agree. If you go, you know, to Twitter, Facebook, wherever you, you happen to go for your fantasy um, fix every week, you will find sword and sorcery interchanged with, um, you know, with all things fantasy. So it can, it can range from Dragonlance to, uh, Thomas Covenant Chronicles, for example, will be will be sword and sorcery. Um, that's very common, but it actually is a separate genre distinction, at least that I've identified. And I think there's some real evidence for that if you look back at the history of of what sword and sorcery is. I mean, to, just to give a little background before I get to the elements, maybe you know, it really started with the pen. Uh, of Robert E. Howard, who was a, a, a Texas writer, 1906 to 1936. Readers know him today, of course, from Conan the Barbarian, who's been popularized in comic books and several films and, and uh, remakes of films, um, or say reimaginings of the character over the years. But he was writing again back in the early 20th century, right after the start of the Great Depression, 
um, during the Great Depression. And um, he was writing very different fantasy than what you might be seeing from the likes of, say, gosh, I don't know, George MacDonald or who, was, who might be some other examples here, like Lord Dunsany, for example. Very or, different from Lord Dunsany's like fairy tale style. Yeah. yeah. Or William Morris's long medieval inspired romances. He was writing for pulp magazines. So Robert E. Howard was writing short episodic stories to fit that medium specifically. And if you think about Weird Tales, which was the magazine, which was the pulp mag he wrote for, you know, they were publishing fantasy type stuff, but they were publishing a lot of horror. Uh, they were publishing some mysteries. Um, they were publishing the likes of, you know, Sax Romer or uh, other authors. And there was a lot of disparate influences that came together that that Howard was influenced by and he created this sort of fantasy milieu and fantasy character from things like the occult ghost stories he took brought elements in and he what, what he added was uh, a layer of um, heroic action over it so his characters are they're not powerless you know they're 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 very much able to influence their environment uh, usually at the point of a sword, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but they're, they're not the helpless characters of, you know, of, of a, of a James Joyce novel, for example, they're, they're very much action oriented there. He, he was also inspired by historical, um, writers. You have, you know, you had the likes of, um, Harold Lamb, for example, or Jack London inspired Robert E. Howard. So he, he took a lot of these elements and essentially he, he was the originator of the, of the genre. So, that's a little bit simplistic because there were many authors that came after Robert E. Howard. You had Fritz Leiber and Michael Moorcock and really, I mean, Leiber was writing as late as, as early as the late thirties, but really came into his own in the forties and fifties and Moorcock in the early sixties. And they were the ones that actually put the label on the, on sword and sorcery. Um, right. The name know. didn't come until the sixties, didn't it? Right. Though, 19, you know, the round, yeah. Yeah, 1961, and in the, in, in the pages of Amra, which was a uh, fanzine at the time, uh, really a cool footnote in history. You know, it was mimeographed and circulated amongst a group of, of fans with similar interests. So Fritz Leiber and Moorcock coined the term in a conversation in letters, and and I think they expanded the definition even then. But to sort of sum up where I was going with all this, Oliver, you know, I I. I sort of characterize sword and sorcery as uh, it has to be an action-oriented tale. Um, usually, it's a singular hero, maybe a pair of heroes. I mentioned Fritz Leiber, who has Fafford and the Gray Mouser, for example. But you're not going to find a, a panoply or a cast of characters like you would find in, um, you know, the Lord of the Rings, for example. Or yeah, no sort of sorcery fellowships. <laughs> Right. Even George R. R. Martin, where he's shifting characters by chapter, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's typically not what you'd see in a sword and sorcery story. Fast paced, pulpy. It has that pulp heritage. Uh, and usually it has it, it should have an element of uh, magic, um, you know, supernatural. And I, I like to think of it as sort of dark and horror inspired. You know, again, that that weird tales tradition and, and the magic system is often unpredictable so right if you think about like harry potter you know you, you can go to a school of magic and you can learn how to cast spells and uh from a professor and there's sort of an orderly system to it all whereas you know in, in sword and sorcery 
anything can happen. Demon summoning, uh, the, the worst possible outcomes you can imagine from grimoires and, and, and old texts and the Necronomicon and, and this type of stuff that the hero frequently encounters. Yeah, that's one thing I really love about sword and sorcery is that um, with the magic, you don't get a rock, paper, scissors feeling ever. And uh, I mean, no, not to prove what anyone else likes, but I kind of prefer to have fantastic elements, whether we're talking about fantastical like fantasy or sci-fi, you know, craziness. I prefer to not have it be ruthlessly explained because then it's more awe-inspiring, right? It's meant to be something outside the norm. And so yeah. in Sword and Sorcery, I love how the magic, as you say, like, you, you know, there's no manuals, there's no mass production of miracles. A, a guy points his finger at you, anything could happen. <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah, and yet, meanwhile, it feels to me always kind of grounded, you know, I'm getting a little ahead of my questions here, but I, I do like how the heroes also, uh, as you say in your book, tend to be outsiders and that tend, their perspective tends to be kind of bottom up, even if it's someone getting caught up in a big Game of Thrones style battle, let's say the point of view is not of lords and ladies unless there's like a scheming noble we're checking in with as a villain. You know, it, it's it's someone like Conan or Fritz, uh, sorry, Fafrin Grey Mouse are just trying to survive and get some money and like get through this thing. Would, would yeah, you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, in, in Flame and Crimson, I, I lay out eight or nine points that I feel like are representative of the genre, but I specifically say, you know, it's not, this is not some connect the dots game where you have to have all these or there's some purity test for what is or is not sword and sorcery. I'm just trying to uh, come up with the, the basic elements of what it is. And, and, you know, a, a sword and sorcery story should contain at least a few of these, or you're getting really far afield of what, you know, you'd expect to see in that type of fiction. But yeah, the outsider hero, for example, I mean, you look at uh, the very first Conan story published, The Phoenix on the Sword, and, you know, Conan's a king in that book, but he is very uncomfortable in that position. And there's a really a nice poetic verse from, from Howard, um, you know, where he's talking about um, wine and his poison and daggers at his back. And he'd, he'd rather be out on horseback with the Cossacks than, than on a throne and dealing with day-to-day -day politics. So even when they manage to ascend all the way to the top, they're really looking to get into the next adventure. Yeah, or like uh, I think of Elric of Elmabini, Michael Moorcock's guy, and how he, you know, in the first chronological story, you know, he is the emperor of his sort of very um, demented BDSM pervert elves. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, reader, uh, listener, I'm not kidding, go read the book. Um, but, uh, but, you know, even though he's emperor in the last in a long line and could not be more accepted in one sense, he, he's the only guy amongst these awful, awful not elves um, that has anything resembling a conscience and that makes him the outsider even you know he's the Correct. guy who's alone in a crowd so he, he's still yeah. very much i would feel qualify as, a, as an sns here yeah he is, he is a mel nibbanean but he's not comfortable in that position and the mel nibbanians have been through over civilization um they they take sport and tort exquisite tort drawn out torture of their enemies and they're they're pretty monstrous group of you know, they, <laughs> I yeah, remember and, there's, there's, there's one scene in there where they've manipulated these, you know, prepubescent boys and, and their vocal cords so they can only produce one perfect note and they're all singing in harmony is for the for the delight of these emperors. And it's it's pretty sick stuff. And he's part of that, but he's very much uncomfortable with all of it. And it does put him in that outsider role. Yeah. And it's not that it's, it's saccharine, like he's a total good guy right off the bat. He's just the first no. guy to be like, is, is, is having mutilated slaves bad? <laughs> I maybe I gotta think about this. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, moving on. Um, I'm curious, what first drew you to sword and sorcery, and 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 why were you drawn to it? 
Wow. All right. I'm going to go back in the memory banks here. So I'm, uh, I was born in 1973. So that puts me at age 48. I was a child of the eighties. You know, I was, uh, that was, that was where the decade where I grew up. And, and back then, um, I tell the story in Flame and Crimson at the beginning, but there was a, it was an old bookstore on, in town. If you, something that was actually called bookstores, they still had them back then. <laughs> And I had an allowance and my parents would give me, I think it was five bucks um, a week to spend. And I would go to, I was shepherding this money very carefully. I would go to the bookstore. And at the time I was buying comic books, you know, Avengers, Captain America, Thor, all the usual titles, X-Men, Spider-Man, Captain America was a favorite. But I, I still remember this vividly. I, I was in the bookstore and it was a, just a, cardboard box on the floor and all the magazines in it were standing upright. So all I could see was the top of them, you know, not, not the spine, but just could have been anything could have been national geographic, you know, and I pulled one out and it had this scene of a barbarian battling a horde of ghouls. And he had a curvaceous woman clinging to one muscled thigh. And it was, it was an early edition of Savage Sword of Conan it was somewhere in the twenties. And I pulled that out and it was just amazing. You know, when I opened it up, it was black and white. It was very different than the full color comics I was used to, but it's larger size. And the, the thing about that particular issue was, if, as you might recall, that, you know, the comic books used to have a comics code. It was kind of BS, but the, you, you couldn't depict certain things because they assumed the average comic book reader, rightly or wrongly, was a, was a, a child, you know, an adolescent. So no ultraviolence, no, no nudity was allowed. Savage so had to be punished, right? Like it came yeah. out of moral panic in the 50s. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. It was like the Hayes exactly. Code, but for comics. Yeah, exactly. So they, um, Savage Sword skirted that by saying it was a magazine, essentially. It wasn't a comic book. And they were able to put a lot of stuff in there that for a, for a 10 or 11 year old kid was, was eye opening. I, I loved it. You know, you had like hands getting cut off at the wrist or beheadings. And I remember that, that issue also, it had actual articles. So text articles. There was a, there was a dude, Fred Blosser, who I just re reviewed one of his books for uh, the Dark Man Journal. He used to write, you know, semi-scholarly articles, like they called them Hyborian scholarship. So he'd be looking at the Hyborian age and comparing it, you know, connecting the dots to our modern age. And there was also a photo spread. They had they had a cosplayer. They had a, a, a gal who was dressed up in red Sonya clothing, like actual photographs, scant, very scantily clad, you know, the chainmail bikini look. And I picked this out and I, I just loved it. I fell in love with it right then. And that was really what got me started down that. And we also had Thundar the Barbarian on TV, which I guess if you want to get real nerdy is technically sword and planet, whatever. <laughs> it's it's sword and sorcery, you know, with the serial numbers filed off. And then, of course, you had uh, Conan the Barbarian, um, the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger around that time. There, there was a lot of things that came together. But, you know, what, what also I, I guess got me there was I was a little dissatisfied with the current state of fantasy so you know at, at that time lord of the rings had already come out and you had this wave of imitators um specifically guys like terry brooks with the sword of shannara uh you had the david eddings books um the belgariad etc and i was just I, I i wasn't into the multi-volume world building high fantasy type stuff and the tolkien clones and sword and sorcery was something very different it was an appealing alternative to a kid like me yeah, no, I found it very refreshing. Uh, not to bring up the pandemic in this podcast, but like a lot of people, I, I found my reading became a little different. 
during this stressful time. And one of the things I was really grateful for and that I was, I was already studying sword and sorcery for my own purposes, but I read so much over the last year because I couldn't, I just couldn't commit to a 600 page door wedge of anything. <laughs> and I could totally chew through 150, 200 pages of sword and sorcery. Yeah. You know, just little, in, in turn, those pages composed usually of short stories. Yeah. Uh, I, I found it very digestible, a very refreshing change of pace. I mean, I, I've read, you know, Stephen King's The Stand, unedited, still has the coffee stains on it, you know, however many 1,500 pages that was. And I loved it. But um, but boy, especially I find as you get a little older and you got a bit more to do, it is nice to be able to read short, quick, moving, punchy stories yeah, uh, that, and don't, if, that don't waste your time. And if they suck, it's not a huge investment of time. You can just go to the next story. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, maybe we don't need to go too deep, but... Uh, you know, I was listening to uh, Rogues in the House, the Sword and Sorcery podcast. There might be others, but that's the one I know. And I found it interesting when they described Sword and Sorcery uh, not necessarily as a subgenre of fantasy, but as historical fiction with a twist. You know, historical fiction with like a wizard. Would you agree with that? And if so, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the importance of historical fiction in a genre with wizards, demons, and demigods? Uh, you mentioned Howard Lamb. I think he was like a huge influence on, on Howard, right? Yeah, Harold Lamb was absolutely was, and I I, I would agree with that. Yeah, you know. Um, so again, going back to Robert E. Howard, he he said, and he, he had this amazing correspondence, and I would just recommend to your listeners if you want. I'm, I'm probably will plug a few books throughout this podcast, but go for um, it. If if you haven't yet read A Means to Freedom, it's two volume set published by I believe it's um, I believe it's Hippocampus Press publishes it. It's a two-volume collection of letters between Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. Um, right, the they were big the, pen pals. Yeah, they famously started corresponding because Howard wrote to Lovecraft about a, a story he wrote, um, I believe it was The Rats in the Walls, where Lovecraft used had had an incorrect use of I, I think it was it was either it was either Welsh I believe it was he he said it was a Welsh passage and uh, or he he said it was. I, he said something else, but Howard corrected him that it was actually uh, ancient Gaelic, I believe. I think he said it was Welsh, and Howard corrected him as Gaelic. And, and uh, Lovecraft didn't take offense. He said he deliberately did it, and he put it in there because he just liked the turn of phrase. And that, anyway, that that little exchange famously kicked off this six-year correspondence in letters from 1930 to 36, where they talked about everything from. You know, and they, they were such two different dudes. You had you had Lovecraft, who was living out uh, principally in Providence, Rhode Island, and was sort of a you know a scholarly type, and uh, living in a small you know a brownwood apartment. And, and you had you had Howard, who was the Texan, who was you know living in Cross Plains, Texas, in a in a in a very much more obviously conservative part of the country, and. And you, you'd think they had nothing in common, but this, this correspondence still exists and it's amazing. Almost every letter is preserved. It's two volumes, well worth reading. But yeah, Howard was, and he's revealed in this exchange to be a lover of history, right? He, he knew a lot about um, world history, ancient history, uh, but also local history. He loved his native Texas and many have speculated that had he lived and not you know died by unfortunately myself inflicted gunshot wound that he would have gone on to 
maybe write some great Western novels. He was leaning in that direction. He had this Breckenridge Elkins uh, character that he created, and he was starting to get into Westerns. Um, so he, he w- and he, he said in one of those letters, you know, if, if he could have made historical fiction work, he would have done it in a heartbeat, but it required too much research, too much time. You know, when you, when you write that type of fiction, you're, it's a higher standard, right? You can't have anachronisms in there, and he, and you get you get called out on it if you screw something up. It requires you to research. So what Howard did was he sort of took a lot of that historic love of history and historical elements, and he bolted on this uh, fantastic world, uh, the Hyborian Age of, of Conan, famously. But even deeper than that, the Volusian Age of, of Cull, which was another one of his characters, uh, it was sort of a prehistory. So it was a fictitious prehistory based in sort of some pseudo-science, pseudo-history that a lot of folks believed in at the time. You had Madame Blavatsky, and you had this theosophy, and you had these strange theories of how the human race came to be and the various sub-races. And some of that was sort of believed by the general populace, but he, he, he took a lot of that and he bolted on his fantasy. So what, what it allowed him to do to, to get all the way back, he was able to kind of shorthand world build by putting in some familiar places, names, races um, that we can immediately associate, like we can place Conan in a context. For example, he might say like uh, Af- Afghulistan, and it's, a, it's sort of thinly veiled for Afghanistan. Um, you know, yeah, that, and that, people of the black circle. Of yeah, that's my favorite of his stories, and he, and and uh, his men, his men, his his Afghulis, and you're like, I think I know what's happening here. Yeah. <laughs> So he doesn't, he doesn't, it's it's brilliant because he doesn't have to go through all the tedious 80 page info dump of here's how my world works. Here are these people. Here's this, here's this uh, map. He can sort of use these elements and you, they're, they're familiar, but then he tweaks them. He layers in magic. He changes some things and it's, it's a great way to create a world without needing to put all of the heavy handed exposition in there. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, you remind me of something, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, Lovecraft also had a little bit of interaction with Fritz Leiber, and Fritz Leiber came to yep. him, with, you know, saying, I've got these guys, Fafford and Grey Mouser, what if they were in a big city of thieves like Alexandria in ancient Egypt? And Lovecraft said, why not make it your own thing so that the history nerds don't pick you to pieces? <laughs> and yeah. he's like, ah, oh, maybe I'll call it Lankmar. And thus, you know, off we go into uh, one of the most foundational city of thieves uh, ever going. And, and I mean, it's I've read all the books back to front, and I would say it's very much its own thing. But uh, you know, if, even if someone, if, even if I wasn't aware of that fact, the fact you know that he started from real history, I think uh, helped make it feel a real place. Absolutely, and you're right. That that was another. I have that one as well. Um, Fritz Leiber and H.P. Lovecraft, Writers of the Dark, also by Hippocampus, recommended. This is letters exchange, and not nearly as extensive as the Howard letters because Leiber came in. Uh, to Lovecraft's life, I believe, in 35, and Lovecraft passed in uh, 37, not too long after Howard. That was really the end of Weird Tales when those two passed on, and, and uh, the, the the other of the Holy Trinity, Clark Ashton Smith, was kind of devastated by those losses and really largely ceased writing. He did write some stories after that, but not not nearly as voluminously as he did. Yeah, and one of the um, earliest sword and sorcery uh, uh, woman authors, C.L. Moore, I mean, she, I think at that point she had done her Jarell Jury stories and kind of moved on to other endeavors. So 
you know, yeah. hers was nowhere near as tragic as those two gentlemen, but she also kind of moved on. So yeah, maybe it went into like a, would you say it went into like a fallow period for a few years between like the thirties and those? Yeah. Yeah, that was a golden. That was the that that was the golden age. That's what started it. You know, you 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 had um, Howard, and then you had C. L. Moore, and you had uh, Henry Cutner, who was a big fan of Howard's and Lovecraft's, and he wrote his own uh, Lack of Atlantis stories. Recently picked up by another uh, fine author, Adrian uh, Cole. Well, so, actually, that brings me over to where I was hoping to take us there. Yeah, uh, yeah, he he's had those uh, stories, uh, Lack of Atlantis, published at least some of them in Tales from the Magician's Skull, uh, yep. which is a contemporary, fresh uh, sword and sorcery magazine. Uh, a sixth issue uh, is on the way, I believe. Uh, they've just had submissions uh, for it earlier this year. And it is edited by fantasy author Howard Andrew Jones. Now, I've seen him and others use the term heroic fantasy to describe works that I think of as sword and sorcery. Would you say maybe that's kind of marketing, like an attempt to get away from the stigma of the bad 80s barbarian movies that a lot of people still kind of remember? Or is there a subtle difference between the two? I think heroic fantasy, it's its unfortunately a little bit ill-defined, kind of a diffuse catch-all term. I think sword and sorcery could fit under it. I don't know. I, I guess I would say you know, her, heroic fantasy can be used, again, the stories of... of uh, Lord Dunsany or E.R. Edison's uh, Worm Ouroboro, the Worm Ouroboros, or something like The Broken Sword, Paul Anderson, which is more of a novel form and maybe has, it's got a couple characters, two different viewpoints. It's in, introduces gods. It, it's probably a little bit more high magic than you, your average sword and sorcery. That's sort of how I define heroic fantasy. It, I think it's just, I think it's just a little, a little broader term. They use it, and it it may be that sword and sorcery does have this uh, a stain. And I, 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 again, I do describe in the book some of the. It's it's sort of become a term of derision. It was pretty poorly treated starting in the late fifties and the sixties and seventies by the you know the burgeoning fantasy academic movement. Um, sword and sinew, it was called at one point. Uh, Stephen King notoriously just lampoon the whole genre in his um his nonfiction study uh, dance macabre where he oh, i didn't know that he, he basically said it was like uh hardy boys dressed up in bear skins and uh and effing women yeah. he basically took a big dump on it and and at the time you know to be on to be fair there, there was a lot of bad pastiche being written then you know you, you had um john jakes's uh, Brack stories, and you had, uh, of course, Lynn Carter's Thongor stories. You, you had this barbaric stereotype that came out of it. Uh, that is really, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I I enjoy some of that stuff. I'll be honest. It's light beating. It's 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 fine. It's shallow. Um, you know, I think uh, Gardner Fox was probably the best pastiche of of, of all in terms of he was a famous comic book writer and pretty talented writer in his own right. He, he was sort of, he did it a little bit tongue in cheek. His, oh, just for our listeners who aren't familiar, when you say pastiche, I mean, is that like someone just kind of doing a rough imitation without trying to make it their own or? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there, there are different, uh, you know, there, there are different ways to use that word. I, I kind of see it as someone who takes the spirit of the, of the genre or the, or a character and maybe puts a little different spin on it, but it's like, it's an obvious homage to that character. I mean, you have this, the straight up pastiche where someone is creating, you know, the 
Tor, for example, did a line of Conan novels in the 90s where they had different writers all together long after Howard's death, uh, spinning out stories of, of Conan. You had, you, had, you had guys like uh, Steve Perry and you had a number of other authors drawing a blank on them all. I've tried to block out the tours from my memory, but the, 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 there was a lot of that stuff. And it, essentially it's, it's sort of taking this, the, the broad stereotypes or the, the, the broad traits, characteristics that uh, other authors have laid down and creating something quote unquote new, but that is an mm-hmm. obvious homage or, or uh, pastiche, if you will, of the original character. Okay. Um, well, I mean, to move away from the sort of broad strokes of sword and sorcery uh, to something more particular, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm really fond of how grounded most sword and sorcery heroes are. I mean, even if they're like big muscled men or whatever, and they aren't all Conan the Barbarian. Listener, if you're unfamiliar with the genre, believe me, uh, as we've mentioned other ones, Fafford and Grey Mouser are kind of a big guy, little guy thief team. Elric of Melnibony is this tortured emperor who very quickly moves off his throne. Not a spoiler, it happens so fast. <laughs> um, and and so on and so forth. Like there are actually, uh, I would say a broader uh, spectrum of characters for sure. But yeah. Um, so, but even, even when they are like unique, like Elric with his, you know, emperor of a uh, weird people, uh, I, you know, I find they are often relatable, you know, how their POV tends to be very bottom up and all the stuff we talked about yet sword and sorcery often makes their settings truly feel in the literal sense. Awesome. You know, uh, something else from tales of the magician's skull in their submission guidelines, uh, for that sword and sorcery magazine, they say that sword and sorcery should re-enchant the world mm. not just be grim and gritty i mean that there is a genre term for that kind of thing grim dark where everybody's a jerk and everything sucks but you know if you revel in anti-hero type stuff have at it but that they they insist that that magazine at least that that is not sword and sorcery um and i'm inclined to agree i do feel like some of the better stories i've read make me feel like the world is a bigger and crazier place and not necessarily a worse one how would you feel about that the, this whole re-enchanting the world idea with sword and sorcery yeah, you know, I mean, I think sword and sorcery is pretty mutable, and and there there are different ways to spin it. You you have some grim dark elements, like if you look at a Clark Ashton Smith, some of his stuff is pretty grim for the protagonists, and they they frequently meet bad ends and don't live to survive to the end of the story. But you know, I mean, all fantasy, if it's done well, should cast a spell on the reader because it's putting you into a different place. It's 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 moving you out of the day to day nine to five office grind or the current politics and uh, you know climate change and all the stuff we're dealing with today and and puts you in a world where anything's possible. You know, and I think I I, I haven't submitted. I'm I'm not a, myself a fantasy author of uh, fiction. But I think maybe where Howard's coming from is, you, and you touched on it, Oliver, is that right right now what's incredibly popular are grimdark novels. That's that's a that's kind of a new term, but it's essentially worlds that are just pretty awful, where there's no really no difference between the the quote unquote hero and the and the uh, the, the villain. Um, there's something to be said for that, you know, this, some of the old fantasy with the white hats, black hats, and the simplistic view of the world is it can be a little bit um, off-putting childish i think grimdark probably goes a little to the extreme gosh i read a book recently it was um uh the cold commands and i can't remember the the author's name 
he's done a lot of science fiction stuff. Uh, Richard Morgan. So it, it was it was the middle book of a trilogy. He he wrote uh, a pretty. I mean, the guy's an. Don't get me wrong. He's a fantastic writer. He's done some um, cyberpunk and and other types of stuff. He he did, put his toe in the water of fantasy. He wrote a a trilogy essentially, but very much grimdark. And there's a the, you know there's a scene where and he he mentions in the beginning of the book he was one of his literary inspirations is Carl Edward Wagner who wrote Cain who was a famous sword sorcery character uh, and he sort of borrowed some elements from that if you you know if if you know what you're reading you will you, you will see he he actually lifted a few things in deliberately and and out of uh, love for that character and served them in his book but his and and, and Cain is not exactly uh, light and fluffy reading but you know no, there's for like listeners who aren't familiar Cain <laughs> in short it's definitely one of the most like heavy metal sword and sorcery protagonists. Oh, I'm not super familiar with him, but I have read one one of the works and and also read your excellent writing about Kane in your book. And yeah, he's immortal, and his sort of hubris is always that he's lived so long, <laughs> and he kind of keeps tripping himself up in the same ways. But then he tries to conquer the world again, or some other huge thing. Like you know, there's a story where it doesn't get tied up in, in modern era uh, in the modern era, and like there's nuclear bombs floating around and stuff. Like it's really bananas. Yeah, um, he, he tends he to have puts, a very grim outlook. It does. He puts some crazy, crazy stuff in there. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. Richard Morgan lifted some elements, but there's like, you know, this protracted scene of torture where these people are on boards and they're being lowered into water and there's these flesh eating squids that, that eat them in little, little, you know, nickel sized pieces at a time when they die in hours in agony. And it's awful. Like, it, like that stuff might be implied in a sword and sorcery novel, but you know, don't spend three pages writing about it. It's stomach turning and churning. And even and even a guy like Joe, Joe Abercrombie, who's been I think named King Grimdark. I I think the guy is a phenomenal writer. Like if you want to learn how to write and write amazing, witty, sharp dialogue and tell a compelling story, read Joe Ab Abercrombie. But his stuff is pretty gritty. You know, he has the heroes, I read which that, I yeah. read and enjoyed. And uh, you know, basically, the the world is shit, and you know, we all get dumped into the mud at the end. And a, a hero is just someone who lived to write the story at the end and and I, so i i think with sword and sorcery it's i think it was a step in potentially in that direction you know some of the stuff can be can be gritty some of it is hard-edged but by and large the heroes do live to fight another day um by and large they do maybe they obtain the treasure maybe they fail but there is there is a tomorrow for the heroes and 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 the worlds are inspiring and and i think some of that is missing in today's climate where everything is gloom and doom i mean grimdark just happens to be the genre du jour right now and i think tales from the magician skull is a deliberate throwback to to something before this time and 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 a little bit more and a little bit uh, lighter to read yeah, I mean, I, I love how Fafford and Grey Mouser, um, they tend to be a lighter tone, of, even amongst, you know, sword and sorcery of that era. But their lives are touched by tragedy very early on, and that carries with them through their lives as they grow and change. They're some of the, the rare sword and sorcery heroes who get to do that and who get to get older. And it's the contrast that makes it more vital to me. And then they go to amazing places like the story Stardock, where they, it's just them climbing a huge mountain, and there's a whole bunch of weird stuff I won't spoil for listeners. <laughs> but But, you know, at the end of reading it, you really feel like the author just let himself go out there with some fun stuff and, and made the world and the, the people and the creatures and the magic and stuff within it 
feel like you're, you're, you, the reader, are just getting a peek at a little bit of a bigger, more magical thing. And I think, mm-hmm. I think I won't. Sp- I'm not trying to speak for uh, <laughs> Howard Jones or, or or the magazine, but I think that's maybe what they're getting at with this reenchanting the world. And certainly, again, it's something I've liked, particularly reading during this last sort of hard year with the pandemic. Is not only these stories are short and zippy, and that I relate to the characters and their people of action and all that, but also at the end of the best ones in particular. I find myself feeling like, oh, you know, the world feels a little bigger and a little more full of possibility. And I find that more elevating and arguably, I would say more mature, uh, from my, it's my opinion here, more mature than going hard, grim, dark and saying everything's awful, whelp, <laughs> the end, no moral. Um, I, I, think, I think it's a more mature thing to, to have a broader spectrum of possibility and emotion in your tales. And I have found that in all kinds of sword and sorcery and been very happy to find it there. Um, to, to drag us kicking and screaming into the present, I would like to uh, I would like to ask you about one thing where uh, sort of looking to newer sword and sorcery stuff. It's no secret, uh, you know, in its protagonists, authors, and fan base, sword and sorcery does seem to have been dominated by white men for the majority of its lifespan. But you know, in recent years, would you say have you seen that changing? Uh, and and if so, who are some of the more uh, diverse uh, sword and sorcery authors you could draw our attention to? Yeah. I mean, absolutely, it, it has been dominated by by white males. I, I mean, I, I will say, even going back to the beginning, we, we mentioned, for example, C.L. Moore, uh, famous, who wrote the Jarell of Joy stories. Of course, female. Um, people have speculated whether she was trying to hide her gender for the weird, weird, weird tales readership. She actually, in letters, admitted she was trying to hide her real name from her employer. She was writing in the Great Depression, and if she had a secondary income source, she might have lost her job. She was working an office job by day and writing by night. Uh, but, you know, you, 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 you had a handful. You had, um, you know, Lee Brackett, who technically, again, Sword and Planet, but her stuff was very much in that heroic fiction, sword and sorcery vein sort of Rhiannon, highly recommended. So you, you, you had some female authors back then writing. I'm and of course, even, even, yeah, even a guy like Robert E. Howard, people have condemned and, you know, not without justification. He, he, he's very problematic for modern readers today, but he, he had some strong female heroes. So I, 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 but I would say, I would agree with you completely, Oliver, that it has been uh, a genre dominated by white males. Um, you know, we started to see in the seventies with Marion Zimmer Bradley and um, she wrote her sword and she, she edited her sword and sorceress series, which featured a lot of female authors. And you had um, Jessica Amanda Salmonson was another strong female editor who brought a lot of female voice in there and did some good introductions and sort of changed the tenor a little bit, starting with, you know, the feminist movement in the seventies and the eighties, you know, these days, um, there are a couple I would mention. I, I will admit I'm not as up on some of the modern stuff. I, I owe it to, uh, you know, my small fan base to be plugging some more of the modern stuff. Flaming Crimson kind of peters out in the late 80s. I, I do mention some of the new writers working today. And if I had to mention just a few, you know, rest in peace, of course, Charles Saunders with his um, Imaro stuff. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he just passed, I think, last year, 2020. Last fall, kind of, yeah. Kind of tragically. Um, you know, he was living on his own and pretty destitute and um, didn't even have a, a headstone. And there was a Kickstarter started uh, to, to get, I, which I contributed to, not tooting my own horn. It was out there and a lot of people did. And were, they were able to get a really nice headstone for him. And he, he was, a, a you know, really the first 
I suppose the first black sword and sorcery author working, you know, and he, he started writing in the seventies for small magazines and he had a, you know, I wouldn't say it was a hit for him. Unfortunately, it wasn't a big commercial success, but it was a big, it, it's very well regarded today. If, if you seek, seek out his uh, MRO series, um, the Conan inspired, but he, they're set in sort of a fantasy version of Africa. Highly recommend him sort of his, uh, I don't know, a spiritual ancestor, someone who was very friendly with him in his, in his latter days was a, a guy by the name of Milton Davis. Who right. He popularizes the term uh, sword and soul. Sword and soul. And, and, yeah. and publishes and writes, right? Yes. Yep. And he was, I read one of his stories recently in a book called The Mighty Warriors, which just came out in 2018. It was an anthology, um, which he, he wrote, a, he had a very good entry in that. So I might recommend him. You know, maybe Salin and Ahmed, who wrote uh, Throne of the Crescent Moon, which I believe won, or at least was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Novel and Locus Award. So he, he's, he's another uh, person of color who's, who's writing today in the sword and sorcery tradition. And, you know, there, there are a few others. Um, I just read Swords and Sorceries, Tales of Heroic Fantasy, was just recently published in another anthology, but it had a, you know, I, I don't know all the authors, but there was some female names writing in there alongside the men. There was some stories with female point of view characters that were well done. Um, so we're starting to see a little bit more, I think, the diversity of voices come into the, to a traditional male dominated genre here. That's good to hear. I mean, I certainly uh, got a huge kick out of Amaro. Uh, because yeah. it's just refreshing, man. Like never, you know, obviously we should have more diversity in all our creative endeavors so we can have more people see themselves in the works that they read. But even if you're, you know, a good old off the shelf white guy like me, reading Amaro is so fun because it's it's riffing off of cultures that I'm not uh, super familiar with. And so it's more surprising and I feel like I'm learning stuff. You know, it, it sent me off on some research. Uh, you know, deep dives to try and figure out what might have been the inspiration for some of the, you know, mysticism and weird creatures in it. It was it was really, really fun. And yeah, he absolutely builds off of Howard, but he also really makes it his own. Mm -hmm. He really makes his own. It's, it's so not like a pastiche, uh, you know, kind of, you know, Conan in a different setting thing. Yeah, it yeah. is a real shame Amaro didn't get more, um, Parmi Saunders didn't get more recognition while Amaro too. Though I have heard talk there might be a TV show in the works. Uh, for Amaro, uh, sadly, a little too late for him to watch it. But I hope that's true. I hope the the mutterings I've heard online amount to something because I'd watched the hell out of it. You I know, he got so. four books deep into the series before he perished, uh, and as I understand, it just keeps getting better and better. I'm, I've already got my order for number two. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath though. I've heard the same with Conan and Elric recently. There's going to be mini series. I'm I'm still waiting to see those actually appear before I. Uh, celebrate that would be nice and and yeah uh, Saunders did the same thing with that that Howard did you know Howard again we said earlier borrowed from history mm -hmm. um, you know Saunders borrowed from um, you know uh, Africa and African mythology but made it his own you know changed some of the details but it's still he didn't have to create he, he did create a world but he he had a foundation a historical foundation to draw on at least a um, myth, mythological foundation to draw on. Uh, really wonderful stuff. You get, you should check that, check that out. Your, your listeners. Yeah, no, I super recommend it. And he had real integrity too, right? Because he, you know, if you get like a first edition of the first book, you will find a story whose name escapes me. I think it's the city of madness, which yeah. was uh, based deeply in the Hutus and the Tutsis and their conflicts in life. And then years later, when he got the book republished through nightshade press in like 2006, 
um, because of the genocide of the 90s uh, between the Hutus and the Tutsis, he no longer felt comfortable. It was like way too close to what he'd written. And it just made him uncomfortable. And I think a lot of authors could have said, whatever, I wrote fantasy and just left it in there. But he had the integrity to say, no, I don't like this. I'm going to write a whole new story to plug right. in to my continuity. You know, it was, it's not even just like that story was in isolation. It connected to things. And he just did the hard work and surgery, uh, so to speak, to write a new thing and graft it in there. And this, that alone, man, what a, I really respect that as someone who also did, you know, does his own writing. Like that, that would have been hard. Uh, to have to undo a bunch of work you did ages ago, you know? Um, so yeah, no, I think he's fantastic. Uh, so, okay. So as we're getting near the end here, um, as you point out in your book, and I think we've, we've covered a bit here today, the eighties kind of let the air out of the sword and sorcery balloon, you know, leaving many people with an unflattering uh, cartoonish idea of it. Not to poo poo cartoons. You know, I, I enjoyed He-Man as a kid and She-Ra. Um, how would you go about maybe uh, demarginalizing sword and sorcery, or, or or bringing it back? I mean, is it even marginalized, or is it like kind of forgotten as a you know by the majority of people? Because I feel like I feel like there is some sort of new wave sword and sorcery coming, but like, is it just me being hopeful because I'm working on my own novel and I want it to sell? <laughs> you know, uh, like what's you know insert you... truck horn here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, how how do you feel there's a new wave, or is it all just people looking back at the old stuff? You know, what, how do you how do you feel about it? Maybe having a a comeback again, like a because like, it kind of had a renaissance in the sixties and seventies, right? As we talked about, almost like a if you use the if you use comic book terminology, comic book people love to talk about the golden age in the thirties, and then you have the silver age in the sixties and seventies, and then we could argue the eighties was the bronze age, and things got a bit tarnished. And then it just kind of, you know, not barely around for quite a while. But I definitely feel like with things like Tales from the Magician's Skull, like a new, well-made, popular uh, sword and sorcery magazine, I feel like we've got stuff like I've really enjoyed The Red Man and Others by Rimco Van Stratton and Angeline B. Adams uh, is uh, from a couple of North Irish authors, a lovely new collection of short story, uh, sorry, sword and sorcery short stories uh, sent around a central cast of three characters. You know, it feels like there's, there's something building. Am I, am I, am I crazy here? What, what do you think? Yeah, I know. I I would agree. There is something building. Um, I'm not convinced it's a full movement yet. It's funny, Oliver, I just wrote a blog post. I'll I'll toot my own horn for a minute here. I know we might wrap up with this, but I have a blog I maintain called The Silver Key. Silverkey.blogspot.com. I might post three, four times a month on there uh, whenever crosses through my transom and I want to just jot it down. It's not necessarily scholarship. You know, it's it's a blog, but... I, I have a re- I had a recent post on what I think sword and sorcery needs if it's going to get back to somewhere that we had in the seventies maybe. Uh, as it turns out, I'm 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 not on Twitter, but I have I I was able to follow a link back uh, to a, something on Twitter, and I, I I caught a little bit of flack from someone. But I I wrote in there, you know, the first thing I said was, that, frankly, we just need more readers. And, and, and I caught some grief for that because, you know, it's a, it's a tautology. Of, of course, if we're going to make sword and sorcery popular, it's obvious to say we need more readers. Yes, we do. But, you know, I, I threw out some ideas. I'm not saying they're going to work. Again, this is my half-baked idea. But, you know, what, what really made sword and sorcery, I, I think, what, what drove it to popularity was a number of things that we could perhaps bring back in some way, shape, or form. Um, that they had in the sixties and seventies. One was the, you know, the comic books, I, you get a good comic book out there that, that can capture people's spirit, uh, maybe some type of crossover, um, m- media, be that a, a really good movie, um, or even a video game that might 
you know, maybe catch the attention of a, of a journalist and lead people back to the original stories and, and to the fiction that underlies this type of thing. Um, those are really great. I, I don't know if you've seen it, Oliver. That um, it was a, it's on. I think it's on Amazon uh, Prime. It's called Primal. It was. Oh an, yeah, yeah. An, by the same people who did Samurai Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Very sort of sorcery. You know, it's sort of set in you know the, the Neolithic era, and it's you know it's got dinosaurs, but it's got all kinds of weird elements. It's and the 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 feel of it is is full on sword and sorcery. So I, I think if you if you start getting this type of thing to attract the readers, I mean, what 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 we don't have that the '60s and '70s had was you know the mass market paperback. You know, I, I got into sword and sorcery with the Lancer Conan. It was a cheap fifty or sixty cent book you could buy off a wire spinning rack in a in a drugstore that had a great Frank Frazetta cover. That's hard to do, but I think if if we could get um, you know in my pipe dream um, a cheap a printed book out there that was a page turner was an easy read could could appeal to a young audience i mean i i really think you need to get youth and interested in this type of fiction because we we can talk about it all day but we're we're sort of dinosaurs at least i consider myself a bit of a dinosaur and i'm i'm, I'm appealing to a fan base that already has a love for this but many of them have migrated on some of them have passed away you know because the fiction was so long ago i i, I think you need to see a youth influx i think the way to do it is to is to get some type of um secondary media crossover again the, wh whatever that may be film video game graphic novel primal that type of thing and maybe that will lead to, to more readers maybe some type of mass market approach um yeah well fingers crossed it maybe uh you know ebooks are very cheap and uh, accessible yeah. and i gather you know even among young people people tend to prefer physical objects but still those are easily distributed and generally quite affordable and for the time being, if anybody wants to read the old stuff, of course, go to the Merrill Collection, check it out. But maybe you're not in Toronto, and maybe you want to own the book. I have had great success uh, just culling the shelves at secondhand stores. Here in Toronto, Settlers in Newell and Back of Phoenix both have uh, sections where you can find you know, the classics like Liber and that. And if you look around in your own town, you might be lucky and you know, find someone who's selling that stuff. Plus, it's also you know, traded and sold around online. And there's reprints. There's going to be a whole reprint of the Elric uh, stuff uh, this fall, I think. Yeah. Uh, with more Cox, big seal of approval on it. Anyway, uh, we're just about out of time. We have you've been kind enough to give us a lot of recommendations along the way, and we've talked about uh, that in a broader sense um, and in the sense of more uh, diverse authors. So as we're just coming to a close here, maybe we have listeners thinking, "Yeah, okay, Sword and Sorcery sounds good, man. I want to check it out. Where do I go?" Uh, you know. Well, first, I would say uh, please tell us where anybody can get your book because it is filled to the brim with recommendations. All right. Well, uh, Flaming Crimson is available uh, at uh, Amazon. Um, it's published by Paul Piero Press, came out in 2020. So that's pretty read readily available. Just put it in your internet browser and, and, and pull it up. I, I do recommend some, a lot of classic material, some new material. Um, I guess if I could maybe mention just a few current authors, uh, all of Please do. That was going to be my very last question. Yeah, you know, we, we mentioned Howard Andrew Jones. You know, he, he wrote um, a couple of really good sword and sorcery. I would start with The Desert of Souls, which I very much liked. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Scott Odin, uh, a lion of Cairo. He's also written some books with an orc as the protagonist, which are pretty interesting. I mentioned Swords and Sorceries, Tales of Heroic Fantasy is a new anthology. Uh, you got Rogues of Mirth by a guy by the name of uh, Robert Zealous, a.k.a. Robert Zoltan. 
uh, <laughs> Tales of a Tumla by David C. Smith, who's a veteran author who's still writing sword and sorcery. He wrote the Oron series in the 70s, um, still publishing under the Pulp Hero Press imprint. Brian Keene, of all people, horror writer, wrote The, the Rising, has done um, a book in conjunction with Stephen Shrewsbury. It's kind of a fun throwback to some of uh, the classic sword and sorcery. DMR, they're a blog I will sometimes contribute to. They, they did a, a book called Swords of Steel, which was uh, all uh, stories by heavy metal uh, mm-hmm. artists and musicians that contributed. The guys from... Um, uh, Manila Road, they're, they're a band that had its heyday back in the 70s and 80s, wrote some stories there. Uh, Whetstone, Tales of the Magician's Skull are a couple of outlets that that are producing fiction, Heroic Fantasy Quarterly. They're, they're out there if, if you look for them. So those are some places I'd recommend. But yeah, maybe to plug my own book, Flaming Crimson does go into uh, these outlets and others. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I'm someone who's been studying the genre very rigorously the last two years because I want to try writing my own novel. And even so, even with access to the Merrill Collection and all that stuff, I my reading list tripled <laughs> after, reading, after reading your book. I mean, I learned so much and it really helped me see the genre more clearly. And for all the you know wonderful knowledge you've given us uh, you know, in this hour we spent together. Uh, and uh, you said the Silver Key is sort of your online home, your blog? Yeah, silverkey.blogspot.com is where I do my writing. I'm, I'm also on Facebook, and I will accept friend requests there. Uh, I'm not on a lot of the other social media platforms. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 pro- I would probably start with a silver key. That's, that's where I expound upon sword and sorcery, heavy metal music, role-playing games, whatever, whatever, whatever else I want to talk about. Uh, awesome. Now, if I can be cheeky and sneak one question under the wire, uh, you meant, I, I think you said you have not uh, yet writ, tried to write Sword and Sorcery, or, or have you ever taken a crack at it? You've, ri- you've written the book, man. Now you have to go write the perfect Sword and Sorcery novel. That's how it works. <laughs> I have written some stories, but they, I, they will never see the light of day. And they, they were written a long time ago, I mean, 20, 20 odd years ago. I, I realized very early on that I'm not a fiction writer. Okay. Um, Do you think you I might just, write another nonfiction book? Yeah, I, I am. I'm giving some thought to the next work of nonfiction. I have a few ideas percolating. I'm not going to divulge them here. Maybe on a future episode of the show. No worries. fiction, no nonfiction. Yes, um, I, th- I think I will. I, you know, Flaming Crimson was a lot of work. Hmm. Uh, it was, it was, it was some years of research and writing, and I have a full time job, so I was working away the midnight hours or you know weekends here and there to to chip away at the the draft. But I enjoyed it very much, and it was a. I have to say, I was pl- very pleased it won a uh, award from the Robert E. Howard Foundation, uh, the Atlantean, twenty twenty one best long book, uh, long form nonfiction, fifty thousand word or greater substantially devoted to the life or, or, or works of Robert E. Howard. Very pleased that it won that. And that was the, that was really the cornerstone and the cap for me for all the, all the effort that it went into it. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, that was a well-deserved win in my opinion. And the work you put into the book, man, it shows. All right, we got to go. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. It's been lovely chatting with you. I hope maybe we can chat again online in some format or whatever, man. I'd love to keep in touch because, yeah, I think you do great stuff. And, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Oliver. Take care now. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. 
Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.